Well, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Claire McInerney from WFIU and State Impact Indiana. Gun sales, gun violence, gun control, the Second Amendment, all are really hot topics in the news in the wake of a series of high-profile mass shootings in recent weeks uh, and months. Every day it seems like there's a news story about, about guns. The state of Connecticut banned the sale of guns Thursday to those on a terrorism watch list, as President Obama recommended during his recent address. This week, today, we're going to be talking with uh, three experts about uh, various uh, parts of this issue. And we have uh, three great people in the studio with us. Uh, State Senator Brent Waltz is with us today. He's from District 36. Thank you, Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Professor Jody Madeira, uh, professor of law at the Maurer School of Law at Indiana University. Jody, thanks. Hello, thank you. And uh, Rachel Golielmo is with us as well. And Rachel is with Moms Demand Action. Rachel, nice to have you here. Thank you. Hello. All right. So we're going to talk about these issues. And you can join us on the phone by giving us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also send uh, or you can join the live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. This is an incredibly um, difficult topic in a lot of ways. I mean, people have a lot of strong feelings about the issue of of guns and and uh, so state senator brent waltz i wanted to, to start with you i know you're a, a strong uh, supporter of the second amendment and you've spoken out against various um ideas about gun control legislation you know how, can you just sort of explain your philosophy sure absolutely i'm a card-carrying life member of the national rifle association uh my father started teaching me to shoot when i was about five or six years old i, I collect all kinds of firearms from class three weapons to semi-automatic rifles to uh pistols and so I grew up with firearms. Uh, they are certainly dangerous in the wrong hands or careless hands. Uh, but when used uh, properly, uh, they are harmless and they can save lives. Mm-hmm. And it's for those, those good reasons and also the fact that constitutionally uh, it is absolutely protected mm-hmm. uh, that I embrace the Second Amendment as strongly as I do. Okay. All right. So I want to turn to, uh, to Rachel now for Moms Demand Action. What's that organization and, and what would you hope to see happen maybe in the next session of legislature or in the next congressional session? So Moms Demand Action is a grassroots nonpartisan movement led by American moms who are promoting stronger policies and legislation to reduce what we consider an epidemic of gun violence in our country. 88 lives a day lost to gun violence. It's about 30 to 31,000 lives a year. Um, we believe that we can and we have a responsibility to do much more to reduce gun violence in our country. And we believe we're sure that we can do it in a way that's completely consistent with the Second Amendment and respectful of the rights of gun owners. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing that I would like to see happen in the next year is closing the private sale loophole in our background check legislation. Well, Mm -hmm. let's talk about that maybe. What is that um, law that you're addressing? And maybe we can all weigh in on what, what that is and what it would take to change it. So we have federal background check legislation already. But um, it only requires federally licensed gun dealers to, uh, to uh, carry out a background check. And what we know is that many, many sales occur through private sellers. This is the private sale loophole. As many as 40% of all sales are conducted through private sellers. That's at gun shows. Um, and it's also online. And it's a tremendous problem because anyone who knows that they wouldn't pass a background check has this very easy uh, way to go about obtaining a gun, and they do. Mm-hmm. 
And so, Senator Waltz, I want you to respond to that. Uh, you know, federally, there's been well, there was legislation introduced in 2013 that that would have closed this loophole, and it was defeated. And then it was brought back up, uh, perhaps very quickly, and added on as an amendment a couple about a week ago, and was defeated again. Um, why is that a bad idea? First, I take exception to the fact that it's a loophole. You know, we're dealing with legal products that lawfully abiding citizens are able to uh, buy and sell. Uh, felons, people with mental uh, infirmity, uh, history of mental illness are certainly prevented from being able to uh, own these weapons. It's a felony, in fact, if they do. And so if I want to buy somebody's uh, shotgun, my next door neighbor's shotgun, uh, I should be allowed to do that. And I'm not quite sure it's the federal government's role, provided that I'm fulfilling the rule and letter of the law, uh, which under current statute, uh, one would, under that scenario, uh, would be able to do. Uh, I'm not sure we want to have a scenario where if I want to buy a gun, I then have to go to a gun dealer who acts as a gun broker, tax on a fee for this. Uh, I'm not quite sure that we want to go there. I, I certainly do not. Now, just to clarify, though, the, the, the bill is before Congress would have allowed family members to sell firearms to each other or to a neighbor? Family members, yes, but okay. I'm not quite sure neighbors. Okay. Uh, in other words, that there would be no okay. distinction between a gun and knife show, uh, which I regularly yeah. attend uh, throughout, uh, throughout the state, uh, and thousands upon thousands of Hoosiers do as well, uh, either to look at guns, maybe buy guns, maybe sell some of their guns. And, and so that is what the legislation would be targeting, trying to do that, uh, and I would certainly oppose that. Okay. Professor Madera, can you um, talk about that law and you know what's what what's in it and you know what you see with that? Uh, sure. So I think that um, there are several ways to propose closing these loopholes. Um, I, from what I know about background checks, they are very quick. Um, and it does impose a minor inconvenience to go down to your local gun store. But in Indiana, there tends to be one on many corners. Um, so particularly uh, in, in many states, that's not a large burden, um, even for uh, these neighbor-to-neighbor transactions. And um, I do think that one of the things that I'd like to point out just uh, from a legal expert um, perspective is that um, perhaps we should look at not just this federal legislation, but also the state or local legislation, Um, because that way states can tailor laws like background check laws to their individual circumstances. And so if I think there, there very may well be concern if neighbors are selling each other guns because there's no laws that prevent you from living next to a mentally incompetent neighbor or a a neighbor with um, a mental illness issue or an anger management issue or a domestic violence problem, right? Uh, Folks that should not have guns under existing law and often under existing law are prevented from getting guns. Um, But at the same time, we can can open this to another layer of of legislation, and that's the state and local legislation as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, that is often foreclosed to us because many states have laws that reserve gun legislation for the for the state legislature, and they ban municipalities and cities and others from making uh, gun laws. And, and to that point, because we've addressed this throughout the General Assembly over the last several mm-hmm. years, we have a problem if a person wants to take their, their gun up to, let's say, Elkhart, Indiana from Bloomington, mm-hmm. how many different municipalities are they going to be going through? How many counties? How many cities? And is it really reasonable to expect somebody who has a firearm in their car lawfully? They mm-hmm. have their gun permit, uh, they're not committing any crimes, and they might go through 50 municipalities to and from where they're trying to go. Which you're, is a you're different going to, issue. You're going to 
going to, you're going to have to have you brought it up though and well it's a different and, issue than the background so checks. having to have to well you brought it up though and so uh, having a person have to have the knowledge of law of each of these individual ordinances and municipalities i think is unreasonable and an undue burden to the citizen and that's yes, why the general assembly gun, has chosen to to reserve those those rights transporting a gun assembly. across the state is a very different matter than buying a gun and being familiar with the laws that you would have to fulfill to buy a gun in one county versus another. I'm very sympathetic with the convenience factor of having a gun in your car, you know, um, in one corner of the state and having to know every, the laws of every municipality you travel through, whether you had, it has to be in your trunk or whether you can openly carry it in your vehicle. That's very different from the topic we were on, which was actually purchasing guns. Mm-hmm. So bringing it back to the state level right now, is the current law that different cities or counties have their own thing and there's not a um, consistent law throughout the entire state? Uh, no, actually, the General Assembly reserves the right to have that level of consistency. Mm-hmm. And, and on the issue of, of sales, uh, to me, it would make sense that someone who would go to a gun and knife show in Allen County mm-hmm. uh, would want to be able to have the same rights uh, as somebody who might live in Monroe County, uh, that might live in Johnson County, that might live anywhere else. Uh, I think it becomes very dangerous when we start making criminals out of people who are trying to buy and sell guns legally uh, with good intent. Uh, they're not trying to rob a bank. They're not trying to kill someone. Uh, they're just trying to purchase a gun or sell a gun. And by having this uh, patchwork quilt approach uh, to Indiana, I think would be very poor public policy and very irresponsible. So I think the the big question when we see these mass shootings and we see this violence that you know really stirs up a lot in people and who want change, could we make policy that would prevent that and still maintain the Second Amendment right? I don't know, legally, is what, what would be the solution? So, you know, we've mentioned um, closing this loophole so we can mm-hmm. better track who is buying them. Um, I mean, do you, do you see a, a compromise coming soon with so much dialogue around this? I think it's, you know, it's very political, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. that we can see a compromise because, in fact, a large and overwhelming majority of Americans agree on the need for a stronger background check system, on expanding our, our present system to make it more effective. Nine out of 10 Americans agree. Uh, 86% of Hoosiers agree, according to a recent survey by Ball State University, the Hoosier survey. 83% of Hoosiers agree on expanding background checks. So really what we're talking about here, we have, we have good reason for optimism, good reason to believe that we can get the changes that we need to reduce gun violence. We just have to convince our legislators that the public wants this, the public is asking for this, and we're waiting and expecting them to act upon it. The genius of our founding fathers is that we are a, we are a republic. We are a nation of laws. And so 70 years ago, when the public overwhelmingly wanted to round up Japanese Americans and put them in concentration camps, which they did, uh, the public overwhelmingly on polls demanded such things. It was clearly unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled that those infringements on these Americans' rights was unacceptable uh, and illegal. 
And, and so I'm not quite sure we want to go to the perspective of, well, if people really want to break the Constitution on this case, uh, that somehow that is as an agreeable or permissible thing. I think when we let emotions, uh, and these are very emotional times, don't get me wrong, but when we allow emotion to rule <clears throat> instead of the laws to rule, I think a lot of times we go down roads that uh, history tends to judge us negatively on, and I would be very concerned about that. Let me offer our phone numbers really quickly because mm -hmm. uh, people out there may want to join this conversation. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington and 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Senator, I wanted to follow up a little bit because um, please help, help me understand why it's all right to have these background checks for licensed gun dealers, hmm. or would you prefer that we didn't have those as as well. I think there absolutely needs to have a framework for background checks. I think the framework needs to be as inclusive as possible, uh, balanced, of course, with the need of people to uh, have commerce with legal, uh, legal products, which firearms are. Mm -hmm. um, like I said earlier, I, I collect class three weapons. I go through a very intensive background check. The FBI has to go through and, and make sure that I'm not a felon, uh, go through all of my records to be able to do that. And, and so I certainly don't have a problem with firearms being regulated in that context. The problem becomes what constitutes or knowing what constitutes a burden uh, to the average citizen to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Uh, and I happen to think that the Second Amendment is uh, very clear in terms of what this means. And I think a lot of people view these restrictions as a first wave eventually to uh, gun banning, uh, which we saw in the 1980s and early 1990s. And uh, some people are afraid of gun confiscation. Mm -hmm. But let me just you know, drill in a little bit more. So what's the difference between someone who you know, the, wants, to, wants to and has a right to buy a gun, buying one from a licensed dealer and buying one from um, you know, a gun show, why should there be a different level for those two places to buy a gun? Well, I think generally when you're dealing with person-to-person -person contrast, I go to my neighbor to buy their shotgun, you're going to have a level of familiar familiarity with that person. Whereas if I go to a gun shop, that person may or may not know me. On top of that, gun shops will have much more uh, quantity of guns that are being sold. In some cases, hundreds of guns a year, maybe thousands of guns a year. So when you're dealing with that type of volume versus smaller individual transactions, I really do believe that there is a difference. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's precisely what we're talking about at gun shows. We're talking about high volume sales by, by people who set themselves up as private sellers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about sales that take place online between people who don't know each other, are not neighbors, but nevertheless make arrangements to meet and exchange a deadly weapon without a background check. Um, that just mm -hmm. needs to change. Senator, respond. Yeah, I would. Uh, first, any time that there's any type of interstate transaction but on the internet, as you mentioned, you do have to go through a, a firearms dealer. Uh, I bought a, a gun a couple years ago from a gentleman in Florida, and it had to go through a, a dealer very close actually to Bloomington, actually just outside of the city limits, and I used him. And so you do have those restrictions in terms of interstate commerce. Interstate, and, yes. and that has been deemed constitutional uh, mm -hmm. for generations involving the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I would 
make the point that when you're, whether you're dealing with uh, black powder, whether you're dealing with a chainsaw, whether you're dealing with an automobile, all of these are potentially dangerous if misused, but all are potential are, are legal products uh, that we want to be able to encourage uh, people to be able to have those types of uh, transactions uh, with, uh, without an undue burden. And there isn't an amendment to the Constitution that protects your right to own a car, have black powder, or own a chainsaw. There most certainly are uh, protections when it comes to owning a firearm. So I want to bring something up because an automobile is a very deadly weapon mm -hmm. and there are tons of bureaucratic processes we have to go through and it's standardized pretty much. Um, and I think a lot of people, and we've mentioned this, don't want to outlaw guns um, <clears throat> or get rid of the right. And so maybe we can talk legally about the Second Amendment if we expand background checks, if we can make it a consistent process, would that violate it? Or is that maybe where the compromise lies if we do go into changing laws around guns and how you get one? Well, certainly, um, I just like to uh, rebut a, a phrase that Senator Waltz used a bit earlier, which was breaking the Constitution. And I think in the 2008 Supreme Court case Heller, Scalia very clearly says that while there is a very profound, palpable and strong, robust Second Amendment right, this right, like others, is subject to regulation. Um, and we, we can look at whether it's federal, whether it's local or state. And, and it's not just the mass shootings. It's really... Um, and it's not just regulation. It's really uh, sometimes tort suits that come up against gun sellers that allow straw purchases or individuals that are negligent. Can um, you define straw purchases? Of course. Yes. Uh, so, in fact, there is a, a suit going on right now in Indiana brought by uh, Officer Runnels. And I'll use this as, as an example of a straw purchase. A straw purchase. Uh, so um, straw, purchase are, straw purchases are usually when somebody who is not able to pass a, fe a federal background check, uh, meaning they are usually a felon, um, goes in with another person, shops around for a gun, usually at a federally licensed firearms dealer, and then this person buys the gun for the person who cannot pass the background check and then gives them the gun later on. Mm -hmm. and, and that is illegal. Yes, actually. it is. And, it is. and yes. for the point, and also with the Heller Heller ruling, uh, which actually expanded, or I should say, protected Second Amendment rights. I well, think individual it's a, individual rights, particularly. Yes, in, indeed, um, there are certainly regulations of of the Second Amendment. Yes. It's ironic to me that a few days ago, uh, the New York Times, as you'd mentioned earlier in their editorial, uh, had talked about the need to be able to regulate the Second Amendment. I, I wonder if they would be willing to print a front page editorial talking about the regulation of the First. Because they seem to have a very long history of defending everyone from Larry uh, Flint and Hustler Magazine to the slightest in infringement on the First Amendment. It's curious that they would embrace the protection of the First, uh, but be willing to somehow say that uh, those of us who embrace the Second uh, as strongly as they do embrace the First uh, course, uh, with that. The so. First Amendment is regulated. I, mm -hmm. I can't go to a movie theater and shout fire. Mm -hmm. That's the classic case. And it was Justice Scalia who wrote not a liberal, a uh, conservative justice who wrote that the Second Amendment is not unlimited. And of course, just a few days ago, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case um, a, a, that was brought um, challenging the legality, the constitutionality of a uh, assault weapons ban in a mm -hmm. Chicago suburb. So the Supreme Court is affirming mm -hmm. that some level of gun regulation and restrictions on gun ownership is completely constitutional. And I, and I would agree with that as well. Uh, the question, I think, in the debate becomes how 
restrictive do we want to be? Mm -hmm. uh, I think by the old adage of, of someone saying, well, what happens if you buy a tank or a nuclear gun or a nuclear weapon or, or a bazooka? That, that's sort of the classic argument that people use involving the Second Amendment. Um, I've always had to chuckle, I guess, on some part of it because we're dealing with individual weapons. We're not dealing with squad weapons or, or weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we're talking about weapons that are used by the individual, uh, generally the firearm that is the weapon uh, that the infantry uses in that particular military. And so in this case, um, you know, 200 years ago, it would have been the Brown Bess uh, assault rifle, as I guess they would have called it. Uh, you know, and then 100 years ago would have been the Model 1903 Springfield, um, and which was a, a, a single shot. Um, and now today, of course, it's, uh, it's the M16. 100 years from now, it may be a laser rifle for that perspective. But again, the Second Amendment is robust enough to take all of these into account. So okay. we, yeah, we have a few callers. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go to Guy in Bloomington who wanted to bring up some of the language uh, in the Second Amendment. Guy, thanks for calling. Hey, Guy, are you there? <laughs> All right. We'll go to uh, Anthony in Bedford who wanted to talk uh, about lobbyists in this situation. Anthony? Uh, yes, thank you. All right. So when I think of law and I think of lawmakers, first thing that comes to mind is the lobbyists and the influence they have over the lawmakers. And I'm just wondering how does that weight and their influence, uh, how does that compare with the, the public and, and what the public wants? Well, it's unfortunate that you, you equate lobbyists with lawmakers because uh, I have uh, made a career, I guess, 12 years in the state Senate and four years on the Johnson County Council of, of doing my best to represent my constituency, certainly not any special interest group. I can tell you while the National Rifle Association has always endorsed my candidacy, uh, I don't believe they've ever given me a single dollar in campaign contributions. And I was strongly uh, pro-Second Amendment long before I even knew what the NRA was as far as that, that goes. Um, I do my best to listen to my constituency, do my best to uh, um, represent their needs and concerns at the State House. And so from my perspective as a lawmaker, while I listen to lobbyists, I oftentimes don't do what they suggest because it runs contrary uh, to what I believe is right for the state, certainly right for my Senate district. Anthony, any follow? Um, I, <clears throat> well, I appreciate the answer. And then this is one last final question. Let's just... Uh, is it possible for the general public to understand the contributions that uh, lawmakers in the Indiana State House uh, receive and who they receive it from? Absolutely. Every year, uh, an elected official uh, files at the end of the year a campaign finance report. It's online, and it's with the Secretary of State's office, so you can Google it, and you can see every single individual, every single political action committee, every single corporation, how much they gave. I believe the, uh, the limit, I believe, is $99. So anything above that, uh, you'll be able to see and evaluate for yourself on that. Yep. Okay. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank right. you. Rachel? And if you're particularly interested in finding out about contributions from the NRA in particular, there are many um, resources you can access to find out exactly how much was contributed by the NRA to exactly which politicians. And you could go to Every Town for Gun Safety, for example. And I, I would also say one thing about the lobbying and the contributions. When I was running for my third term in 2012, uh, ironically, we're talking about New York, the New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who's a staunch uh, anti-Second Amendment advocate, donated uh, $10,000 or his 
Political Action Committee donated uh, $10,000 to my opponent uh, to try to beat me. Uh, and so I, I, that would be part of the conversation as well. And we, uh, they did not get their way, thankfully. All right. Well, that's we're, a different show, We're going to take a quick call before we, uh, we go to our break. So Guy is on the phone. Guy's back. Guy? Yes, uh, particularly for the senator. The U.S. Constitution specifies the right to bear arms as related to a well-regulated militia. Indeed. It seems to me that in order to have a well-regulated militia, it would be reasonable to require everybody with a firearm to register with the militia and to register their weapons so that the militia could be organized. Would you oppose such legislation? I would certainly oppose the widespread regulation of firearms. Uh, absolutely. And I didn't say regulate them. Oh, the registration? Register them with the militia. I would, not knowing for sure what a, a militia would be today, because, of course, that's a term of art that was used 200 years ago. The militia was an individual when there was a problem or an invasion, like we saw you know, 200 years ago with the War of 1812. People would take their firearm and then go to defend themselves, whether it be against Indian attack uh, or foreign invasion in the case of the British at that point. And so you have to use those terms of art and apply that as best as we can in a modern context. I would, I would absolutely oppose the registration of firearms. Um, I, I have a real issue with that uh, in general. So right. you would just nullify the regulated militia clause? I wouldn't nullify anything. Uh, ah, I, I well, then how would you honor it? Well, I would honor it by honoring the Second Amendment in the context that it would be placed in, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And that whole shall not be infringed part I take pretty seriously. I think it's generally accepted that the current militia is the National Guard that that's what the militia has evolved to. And, of course, that's a very similar concept, that the local community arm of the military, as opposed to the professional military, is the militia. Well, if we use that context, then only a member of the National Guard would have the right to own a firearm. And I would vehemently oppose that definition of the Second Amendment. All right, Guy. We're going right. to have you. to let you go. Thank All you. Right. Appreciate All right. the chance. Hey, thanks a lot, Guy. So we're talking about uh, guns and a lot of issues involving guns here on Noon Edition today. Uh, please join us after we take a short break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
So welcome back to Noon Edition. We're talking about guns today. We have a lot of issues involving gun sales and gun violence, gun control, the Second Amendment. We're going to hit them all today. Uh, if you want to join us on the program, please give us a call at uh, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Our three guests are Indiana State Senator Brent Waltz, uh, Professor Jody Madeira from the uh, IU Maurer School of Law, and Rachel Goyelmo from Moms Demand Action. So uh, we have callers lined up. So let's go first to Zach from Columbus. Zach? Do we have Zach? Uh, apparently not. So well, we'll get back to that. It, it looks like his question, and maybe he'll call back. But um, And I think this is the really important question, is everyone recognizes that these mass shootings and violence we're seeing are tragic. Um, and maybe you know, gun regulation is one solution, but do you see a way that we can get rid of get rid of these um, these tragic things that we have to see? And you know, is it a legal thing? Is it something else that we do? What is it? You know, how do we stop this? Well, I think um, unfortunately, many things cannot be prevented. And right. we cannot have comprehensive legal solutions that will completely nullify. Uh, the tendency for mass shootings to take place. I mean, California has strong gun laws. I will say that a, that a state's gun laws are only as strong as those of its neighbors. Um, and But there, there might be things that uh, we will never know about the shooting, and there are things that only those very familiar with um, these individuals responsible could have seen. Uh, signs of mental illness. And unfortunately, oftentimes they have already purchased guns legally and it's too late uh, to to do something about it before they plan the mass shooting. Um, but we can do many, many things about uh, everyday instances such as negligence and domestic violence. Okay. And perhaps uh, one of the most effective things is not a legal solution at all in particular, but uh, designing mental health records to be more shareable between states. And I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly one of the issues that had occurred when the background checks were beginning to first be discussed in, I believe, the mid-1980s, a uh, little before the Internet, was figuring out a good way to be able to have criminal records transfer from one state to the other. Uh, the Internet and computing power fixed that problem, thankfully, and now someone who commits a felony in Connecticut would be denied the ability to legally buy a firearm in Indiana. That is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. I think part of the challenge, too, is that bad things are going going to happen. There are evil people. There are bad people in this world. And you have to respond one of two different ways. You either have to say, well, I'd like the opportunity to defend myself against that bad person. I'd like to be able to use a similar type of force that they are trying to use against me or my family to protect myself. Or alternatively, you want to hide behind the law and say, well, the laws will protect me. And if you look at the, the, the municipalities, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York City, L.A., they have some of the strongest gun laws in the United States. They also happen to have the highest rates of violent crime, assault, rape, and murder. So if it's just an issue of legislating your way out of this mess, history would show that that is not the case. Uh, it's also interesting to me that some of those municipalities, some of those states that have um, the respect of the Second Amendment, oftentimes have some of the lowest rates of crime, too. And that there is a corollary, study after study, that people are not going to break into people's homes if they think a person is in there with a gun, because they don't want to get shot. Uh, and that ju that's just common sense. As, as a social scientist, um, the leading proponent of that, I believe, is John Laud and More Guns, Less Crime. And his work in particular has been widely repudiated. Um, as, as scientifically unsound. Um, 
and in, that goes back to the point where Chicago gets most of their guns from Indiana. In, Indiana exports three times more guns, uh, crime guns, than they import. And that just underscores the importance of perhaps closing the, back, the background check loophole, perhaps uh, taking these gun sellers, the federally licensed gun sellers, who do so through straw purchases out of commission, as well, there, Officer Runnels is trying to do in Indianapolis. Certainly, he's not the only study. I, I'm not familiar with his work, but if you believe it's been repudiated, I certainly would trust your, your judgment in that regard. But the laws that are on the books of Chicago, Detroit, New York, LA, Washington, DC are very clear, and that is not stopping the crime. And criminals, and this may not come as a shock to too many you know, good, good conservatives out there, but criminals are going to break the law. Criminals are going to do bad things. And somehow saying that we're going to reduce crime by, by increasing the laws that these criminals, by definition, are ignoring uh, blatantly and violently in, in many cases, I don't believe is the solution to this problem. No, but we can definitely reduce crime by cutting down on the amount of guns in the black market. And I, I do think everybody agrees that bad people do bad things. Yes. Conservative, mm-hmm. liberal, whatever. <laughs> Rachel? Yeah, bad people do bad things, and we shouldn't make it easier for them. We should make it harder for them. And when we know that there are things we can do that make it harder for them, we should do them. The corollary to that, of course, is good people do good things. And so when good people have firearms that are well-trained, and they see one of those bad people doing bad things, they can defend themselves. And they they can defend their families, and they can defend innocent people in the line of fire. And I think we need to embrace that philosophy. Unfortunately, in Indiana, there is no requirement for any sort of training to buy a firearm. Let's go to some of the callers. We have Anne in Bloomington. Anne, thanks for calling in. Hello. Hi, Anne. Hi. I would like to ask the panelists, especially the state senator, um, do you think the number of gun deaths, injuries, suicides, uh, is a public health problem? And um, how do you suggest we reduce the amount of gun violence? Well, I think you'd have to define what exactly a public health problem is. It's certainly a problem. There's no question about that. Um, in terms of suicides and, and things of this sort, uh, sadly, there's a lot of ways you know, to kill yourself if a person's depressed. I'd rather focus on the mental health issues of identifying people who are at risk. Get them the counseling that they need so that they aren't going to try to decide whether they wish to kill themselves with a gun or hang themselves or any of these other unfortunate ways that they might do that. Uh, So I do support the ability to try to identify those people at risk. And and over the last 12 years in the Senate, I have funded, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, a lot of programs to help help them do that. All right. Anything else, Ann? Any follow Rachel? That's, um, um, I'd like to know what the, if the other panelists consider uh, the number of gun deaths and injuries a public health problem. We certainly consider it a major, major right. public health problem. Um, it's exacerbated by the fact that um, the CDC and the NIH have been banned from conducting research on the scale of the problem. And that's one of the things that we're calling for in Congress is a lift on that ban so we can get a grip on the scale of the epidemic, um, the size of the problem, what kinds of policies we might enact to reduce it. Very similar things have been done for um, injuries through car crashes, for example. We did a lot of research, and we found solutions that have really reduced the number of injuries and fatalities that, that we experience from car crashes. We want the same thing to happen with guns. It just makes sense, given the scale of the problem. Interesting that you said that. I haven't vetted the research, but in the New York Times last week, they had a lot large- very large graphic about um, rates of death 
in various countries caused that were attributable to guns. And in the United States, guns and car accidents were equal. Mm-hmm. So. I think that involves, too, changing the dialogue about, you know, so much of the gun control dialogue is about uh, liberal, conservative, black, white. And in reality, it's just gray. There's a lot of issues on which we can agree. And seeing this as a public health problem, I think, is one of them, for especially for particular individuals. And smart programs that cross bipartisan lines, like providing gun locks for guns or um, others can can make this an issue like with drunk driving, right? There was a tremendous amount of public education and it transformed the way we saw drunk driving from an individual problem to a societal systemic public health issue. Let's talk about gun lock, locks for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been a number of proposals over the years, both in Indiana and nationally, to mandate that gun locks be used. And ostensibly they were used to try to prevent uh, the un or the accidental discharge of a weapon, particularly amongst children. Mm-hmm. What we find as someone who does have gun locks is it takes a while to be able to figure out how to open the thing. And if you hear somebody breaking into your house at three o'clock in the morning, you're not going to want to turn on your light, look for that key, or figure out a way to unlock that gun lock. You need a firearm handy, particularly if that person is breaking down your door. And so it actually, in many ways, allows the home to be less safe by having a gun lock in there. It would absolutely reduce the potential accidents, uh, particularly when it comes to children, um, perhaps bits of anger, if you will, in terms of domestic violence. Um, But the corollary is a person who needs that weapon to defend themselves is not going to have access to that weapon at a time when they need it. And and that's the question. Um, We talk about public health issues or crises or however a person would want to define that. I think it's also important to talk about the ability to defend a person against these types of attacks. And that's an issue that a lot of times those on the opposite side of this issue seem to ignore and forget. Jody? I think as someone who is very familiar with negligence and principles of negligence, we're far more concerned with children finding firearms than we are protecting ourselves against burglars on a daily basis. I mean, that child is in the house with the gun, you know, if they don't go to school, almost 24 hours a day. And the chances of something happening are very high. Moreover, um, perhaps this is just a better, uh, even from a product's liability perspective, p- perhaps uh, designing better safety products, better gun locks that are faster and more responsive, better smart guns that do not take seconds to identify um, fingerprints. And so it's, it's just a matter of increasing the technology out there. Let me offer our phone numbers again in case other people want to want to join this conversation. We do have quite a few that we're going to get to still, but 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can also join a live chat, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Thank you to Ann for calling in. I want to go to one of our callers who or one of our uh, people who have, has asked a question online. Uh, question, is there data on the amount, and I guess, Senator, that you would be the person and ask us to data on the amount or number of lives, you know, saved by guns. Is there has there been research or data about, you know, this kind of use of guns in self-defense? Yes, there is. Uh, just as there have been, you know, research that's on the other side, there's certainly those that have done research in terms of lawful use of firearms. Uh, certainly more people are killed in, quote, unquote, gun violence than a person defending themselves. Uh, so if you're looking at the strict numbers Forget the Second Amendment for a moment. Someone might be moving towards that way. But I would ask that person that question, that if it's your home, if you know that tomorrow night someone is going to break into your home and attempt to rob you and kill you, 
Maybe that statistic doesn't matter on the other. Maybe you should have the right to be able to defend yourself. Senator, and, that sounds like an emotional appeal. <laughs> well, I, I, I would not say so. I would say that would be a logic, logic and perspective because the laws that we have prevent people from trying to kill people anyway whether it's with a firearm, whether it's with a knife, whether it's with a chainsaw, or whether it's with a car. And the regulations that seem to occur with that, emotional or otherwise, um, do not prevent that to happen. So having an individual have their constitutional right to defend themselves, uh, it, it's amazing to me that we're, you know, in many ways we're even having this discussion. It, it's so self-evident. Uh, it was certainly self-evident to our founding fathers. Uh, it's it's self-evident to me, and I hope a significant number of Americans as well. All right, let's go to, to Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi. I'd, I'd like to hear some specifics about uh, what, what is currently uh, the term assault weapon. When I was in the service, to me, an assault weapon was one that could be switched to full automatic. In addition, uh, I, a long time ago, came to understand that a hunting weapon has very few shells in it. If, uh, in fact, there's an old joke, uh, one shot, one deer, two shots, maybe one deer, three <laughs> shots, no deer. And I don't see a need for a 15-round magazine for hunting, nor do I see it for self-defense. We're not talking about an assault by a platoon. We're talking about a home defense weapon or a range weapon. But these guns who are designed to look like military pieces appeal to an aspect of personality that I think is immature. And uh, I, I'm not against people owning it, if that's a romantic uh, 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 understanding of, of, of what it means to own a weapon. But I don't believe that most people are trained well enough on guns, certainly a lot of police officers fire many shots without hitting a, a target. So part of it is training, part of it is definition, but I think the term assault weapon is a little emotionally loaded, and I, I think we ought to talk about capacity instead. Okay, I'm going to give the senator an opportunity to, to uh, answer, but I know Rachel wanted to comment before. I don't know if you want to... I'll think about it. Okay, all right. <laughs> Senator? Yeah, the, the term assault rifle is actually derived from the German phrase Sturmgewehr, uh, which was a fully automatic weapon, a machine gun, as often is called, uh, during World War II. I get very frustrated when I have conversations and, and discussions on this issue because what's an assault rifle? What's an assault weapon? Any weapon that is being used against another human being, whether it has a 30-round magazine, whether it's a single shot, uh, whether it's a pistol, whether it's a rifle or a shotgun, is an assault weapon. And I think a lot of times politicians, maybe a generation ago, looked at insignificant things. For instance, the bayonet lug. They would look at a bayonet lug, and the 1994 assault weapons ban, as it was called at that point, had a list of, I believe, seven um, items. And it, if a weapon had five of those seven, it would be banned. And one of those was the evil bayonet lug. I hope we can all agree that there's not a lot of drive-by bayonettings on our, our, on our streets, <laughs> or, or if it had an evil pistol grip that somehow you could hold the weapon uh, on your, you know, by, uh, by your hip and then spray into a crowd. Uh, I pray to God that no one ever has to go through that experience, but I would much rather have someone not aiming at me on their hip 
than aiming at me through the sights of a weapon if they're wanting to do me harm. And so I agree with the caller that all too often we're busy looking and, and we're distracted by, by these phrases, these terms, these things that really don't affect the capacity of a weapon or the lethality of a weapon in a lot of ways. But they attempt to do it because it looks bad. It, it's black plastic or it looks evil. So we need to go after it. I, I think that's the type of emotional appeal uh, that has been used in the past and I would reject that. Mm-hmm. The, the emotional appeal is is one thing. I think uh, Stan, as a caller, talked about the you know the size of the magazine and what kind of force is actually necessary, and, and should there or could there be restrictions on things of that nature. And perhaps that's a role as a social scientist for me to step in and say, this is the type of thing we actually need to do research on. I mean, systematic research on what shootings have been out, uh, conducted and and uh, try to make gun regulations that would be most effective. Um, I don't think it would be necessarily in the capacity area, but certainly more in the mental health. The problem with magazines as well is who gets to decide that. Most magazines are 15 rounds for, for pistols and 30 rounds for semi-automatic rifles. So let's say we limited that. And we said, okay, we're only going to have nine rounds for everything. Then a person coming in doing harm has to reload. And it takes roughly half of one second uh, to remove one magazine and put another magazine in. Um, you know, the, the amount of demonstrable effect of that, I think, would be negligible in, in terms of the lethality of someone wanting to do harm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, th- I think, uh, again, before we go back to the, the callers, I want to bring Rachel back in because I think taking this back to, you know, Rachel and Rachel's group, I mean, she she's looking for, and you can speak for yourself, looking for some sense of, of more sense of security through from a lot of the kinds of uh, gun violence that we've seen. And, you know, some of it we've seen in very large headlines and lots of different uh, newspapers and on television you know, shootings in schools, a lot of places where people do come in with, with a lot of firepower and are able to kill a lot of people in a short period of time. Um, so, you know, and Rachel, you can take over, but I'm just thinking, you know, when they when her group presents a couple of ideas, and you're you're saying, and a lot of people saying, not just not just pointing to you, but that reject those ideas. And so, you know, what are other ideas? But Rachel, let me. Well, I mean. I do. It is hard to wrest one's attention away from the unique horror of a mass shooting. It's uniquely tragic. Um, All of us feel insecure after something like that happens in such a random fashion and with such a cruel selection of victims. Um, But in fact, we do have to remember that mass shootings are a relatively very small percentage of the gun violence that occurs in the country. And we have to, you know, try to focus our attention on the, the policies and the legislation that we know will make a difference. And the majority of mass shootings actually occur in homes uh, in situations of domestic violence. Um, women constitute a majority of victims in those shootings, women and children. Um, so we're talking about focusing on policies that we know will make a difference in states that have comprehensive background checks. We have fewer victims of homicide. We have fewer victims of domestic violence. We have fewer accidental shootings. We have lower levels of gun trafficking. We know that because 19 states have background checks. Mm -hmm. So we don't have enough research on the issue, but there are some things we know. This is an effective public policy, and the majority of Americans support it. And we're just waiting for Congress to catch up. 
on the area of research, we have a caller. If we can get, if we can get to Connie, our caller, who has a question on research. Connie? Hi. Hi. I'm just calling to uh, earlier, one of the panelists mentioned that the CDC and the NIH has been banned from doing research on this gun-related death, and I would just be curious to know why that is. Um, I certainly, uh, as a healthcare worker, consider gun violence and gun-related deaths a public health issue. And so I would like to know why these two agencies have been banned from doing research. That sounds very frightening, actually. Thank you. Well, I wasn't there when they did the ban, of course, but I would say that the Center for Disease Control is responsible for disease control. And, and disease, by definition, would be a pathogen, a bacteria, virus, something along those lines. So when you're looking at a fairly limited funded enterprise like the CDC, taking those resources away from making sure that the next round of bird flu uh, doesn't devastate our country, doesn't devastate the world, uh, or these superbugs. Uh, that are becoming increasingly resistant to the types of antibiotics that we have um, in medical science. That's where their focus primarily is. There's certainly a lot of, um, you know, the arguing with statistics uh, is always one of those interesting things. You'll have each side, you know, saying we're safer, we're not as safe, and everyone will bombard an individual uh, with all of these statistics. I, I would say use common sense. Uh, and, well, and we're finding we're finding that those areas that have, like I said earlier, the, the highest restrictions on firearms also are those areas that are the the most dangerous in terms of gun violence, and you are the least safe. Well, we're getting that. a bit off topic there in terms of the research that is done on gun violence. Um, Actually, the CDC and the, and the NIH have both been banned, and that's an unnecessarily narrow characterization of the CDC's authority as well. I mean, they regulate, they um, keep in touch with uh, assisted rate reproduction numbers as well and how many babies are born through IVF, and that's certainly not a disease process at all, right? Um, so I think their, their mission is not as public health as the, as the NIH, but um, the large reason why they have been prevented from doing research is because such research is not allocated public funding by Congress. And I think if I can engage in a bit of conspiracy theory, um, it, it has to do with their priorities and people don't want responsible gun research being done. But there are entities that do responsible gun research. One is in Johns Hopkins and there's also the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. So, so in other words, if there's, if there's privately funded then mm -hmm. that's able to have this, uh, and again, we can always argue back and forth about the validity or the samplings and things mm -hmm. of this sort, but there's certainly a lot of people looking at this, and I welcome those studies. Uh, I'd uh, like actually, to not, there's, there's not a whole lot of people looking at this, and most of the people who have the time and dedication are on the public uh, forefront of, of research. They we, have the training and they have the knowledge. We have less than two minutes, so Rachel. Um, I would just like to add that uh, I think it's a bit disingenuous to suggest that there is not enough funding uh, for the CDC to look at all of these issues. We devote an enormous amount of funding to a range of issues. Let's think about terrorism, for example. Gun violence has claimed many, many more victims over the past years than terrorism. and. Uh, Look at the funding strains, and if you want to know uh, the to answer the caller's question, actually, about um, why that ban was enacted, you don't have to look any further than the NRA. Okay, Scott, we have less than a minute to go. Do you have a quick question or a quick comment? Uh, I, my uh, shooting instructor in the Marine Corps said his idea of gun control is sight alignment, sight picture, good steady pressure on the trigger, and one round, one kill. 
Now, if you, you know, make all the laws, you know, ban guns and all that, uh, prohibition proved that you can ban that stuff, but somebody will always find a way of getting a hold of it. Yes, indeed. Nobody okay. here has yes, been indeed. talking about banning it. All right. Nobody yes. mentioned Scott, that. we're going to have to cut you off now because we are uh, really out of time. So I'm sorry to, to end so abruptly, but it's been a great show today with uh, Jody Madeira, uh, State Senator Brent Waltz, and Rachel Goyelmo. Um, for Claire McInerney and Drew Dodlin, Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.